Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So governments have been spending their way through the pandemic. So what happens to that money? It gets added to the money supply. Then what? Today, we'll look at the impact of government spending and how we might be looking back at this time. And as, as an example of how modern monetary theory really does work. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So the amount of money deposited in banks has reached record highs in many developed nations, countries that have been paying out for furloughed workers and the like, so there's been large amounts of government spending. Data from the St. Louis Fed, uh, the FRED database, shows that across the United States, there were bank deposits totaling $17.5 trillion. That's basically how much money was sitting in people's bank accounts. Before the pandemic, that figure was $13.5 trillion. So this is consumer bank accounts, business bank accounts, the, the whole lot. So, But over those two years, $4 trillion US dollars extra in the United States. So, Steve, this money can only come from two places, can't it, really? It's either loans that have been created by commercial banks or it's government spending that has now found its way into those accounts. That's, by and large, where that $4 trillions come from. Yeah, this is the reason that it's, uh, you know, all of a sudden people are saving so much more money and, wow, aren't they being frugal uh, under, uh, under COVID is such a joke because the money uh, has been created by government spending. If the deficit hadn't occurred, the increase in savings wouldn't have occurred either. And in this, in this mm. sense, uh, there's obviously not the intention of the policy, but it's the best confirmation of modern monetary theory you could hope for uh, because the increase in deposits has been caused by the deficit. By and large, doesn't it? I mean, some of it will will be because people have taken out loans, but that was sort of like early on, and then those loans subsided. And actually, we've, we've seen people in, ma- in many in many countries that then actually starting to deleverage. De- but this figure never goes down, does it? Once it's in there, so it was six hundred million was the number of deposits, value of deposits in nineteen seventy three in the United States, six hundred million. Now it's seventeen and a half trillion, and uh, I mean it. It can only go down if you know a lot of it is loans that have been paid off, and that's obviously not the case between then and now. Or, uh, or the or the government takes it back, which which means they push up taxes, so people pay that out of their bank deposits. But by and large, and this is another example of modern monetary theory being around uh, because it's just ongoing, isn't it? The the from 600 million to 17.5 trillion from 73 to now. Yeah, and like the most important one, the one we're talking about right now, if you look at uh, Wednesday, March 11, 2020, uh, the, the looking at the deposits all commercial bank series from Fred was 13.5 trillion. Uh, you fast yeah. forward to July, which is like you know, a matter of four months, and it's 15.5 trillion. So that, that, yeah. that, that is, there's no way that people have suddenly 
you know, this is where the whole um, childish nature of neoclassical economics becomes obvious. Um, isn't people have saved this money into existence? Because they can't. Uh, if you save money, it means you spend less on somebody else. Uh, your bank amount will go up. Somebody else's will go down. So individual saving can't be behind it. It's got to be something aggregate. And the aggregate is an incredible increase in the government deficit simply because that money was paid so that people could meet their financial commitments. Uh, during COVID, and what those what those mm. financial commitments mean in turn is that money has gone from you know it, it, it go, first of all goes to somebody who's paying needs it to pay the rent, and when they pay the rent, it turns up in BlackRock's bank uh, deposit account. But you see, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, m- most economists uh, will say you know the reason why we ignore debt when we're talking about economics, which is your big thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the the, the the argument that's given by many people is well, debt cancels each other out. You know, it's if you owe someone, then that, that person's got that money. Therefore, that person can spend it. Which is so, yeah, uh, yeah, which is making the mistake again. Like it's just like people make a mistake of doing a household analogy for the government. They make a mistake of making an interpersonal loan as an analogy for banks. And interpersonal, I mean, I know from personal experience, you lend somebody money, mm. you've got less spending power, they've got more. Uh, when they pay you back, if they pay you back, then the balance gets re- 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 uh, rewired and they can spend less, you can spend more. So it cancels it out. That's the way the neoclassicals think about it. But they're dead wrong, uh, as we know from the Bank of England and the, and the Bundesbank, let alone my own modelling on this front. Uh, interpersonal loan transfers, bank liabilities from one account to another. Bank lending creates new bank liabilities. And, and that's, you know, and, and then equally, and so does the government deficit. Yeah, that's right. But the aggregate, if it's, if it's person to person rather than for money created by the bank, then obviously the, the aggregate is going to, is going to stay the same over yeah, time. So the right. only, so the, so the only way this, this can come out, the only way it can be reduced, basically, if we assume that over that time, you know, loans have been, you know, loans will be taken out, but then they'll get paid back again and it'll all mm. even out. The only reason we've gone from 600 million in 1973 to 17 and a half trillion today, is because banks, so governments have been overspending over that period. Well, so you think, well, let's take out the word over there. Governments have been spending. Well, they've been spending it and, cre- and creating that money. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, by overspending, obviously, I mean, you know, you know, they've been spending more than they've been taking in in terms yeah, of yeah. of tax. Uh, and so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So, you know, a lot of people would say, well, obviously, it's a bad thing because we're not living within our means, Steve. Mm, but mm. the argument they'll give as well is that it's inflationary. And yet, it hasn't been, has it, since 1973? I mean, we've got more pe- money people sitting in people's bank accounts. Uh, it's it's not it's not been at the same level. So in 1973, for example, that figure of 600 million. If I put it into an inflation calculator, uh, so I think this one's from the uh, from the Fed as well, which works out you know the historic US CPI uh, and what that figure from 1973 would be today. It mm. would be 3.7 trillion. But it's here at seventeen and a half trillion, so it's almost five times that amount. Uh, I mean, even before COVID, it was you know four times the nineteen seventy three figure. Mm. So, uh, so it's not you know it's it's not creating inflation at the same rate that the money is being created. So, what does that mean? Does that mean we're all actually better off because we've got more cash now sitting in our banks than we than we did have, and we've got more that you know even allowing for inflation? It would be if the, if if the money was created by the government running deficits, but most of that money has been created by the private banking system. So you've got more money, but it, it, mm. that is you know balanced dollar for dollar by more debt, and then you've got debt service to pay on top of that. So and and one of the classic things in in the difference between how uh, banks treat savings and how the 
uh, government accounting of, uh, uh, of GDP treats savings is that savings at the, at the uh, uh, national accounting level is designed as output minus consumption. And uh, consumption does not in, is, is defined in such a way that it doesn't include payment of interest, et cetera, et cetera. So your financial commitments don't turn up a part of your consumption. So um, the, you can get, as we've seen uh, in COVID, when you do the output minus consumption calculation, you find this enormous increase in savings. Uh, but when you look at the, um, the, the monetary uh, figure, most of that so-called savings can actually be increased debt service. And there is no right. increase in the amount of money in individuals' bank accounts. The one that does give you that is what we've seen under COVID. And that's, again, that incredible increase, $3 trillion uh, in, in three months. And uh, because that, when, when money comes in from a, a, a government uh, deficit, uh, that money creates a, a financial liability of sorts for the government, but it doesn't create one for the uh, recipients. So there's a, a net increase in, when, in what MMT people call net financial assets of $3 trillion, courtesy of that deficit. Yeah. Well, in fact, if you look at uh, bank credit, so, you know, the increase in loans at the start of the pandemic, it went from, I think I've got these figures right, again, from the FRED database uh, from St. So is it St. Louis or St. Louis? I'm never quite sure of that. Which one? How do you pronounce it? Anyway. St. Louis, Saint, I think. Uh, St. Louis, yeah, 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 yeah. So from the St. Louis, actually out of all the uh, reserve banks uh, in, in in the States, I mean, they've got a massive data on their website. But anyway, their bank credit figure went from $10 trillion to $10.8 trillion. Uh, so from $10 trillion at the start of the pandemic to 10, it went up to 10.8. It's fallen back to 10.4. Mm. So lending actually hasn't shot up. So it is government money that's being fed into these bank accounts rather than um, um, uh, bank loans. So it's going to be an interesting case study, isn't it? Now, some people would say, well, government spending is going to create inflation. And then we've got this big increase in government spending, a massive money uh, being pumped into, you know, directly or indirectly into people's bank accounts. And we are getting inflation. But then, of course, the inflation is is and it's going to be hard to um, separate out the two because the inflation we're seeing is largely supply constrained uh, inflation rather than too much money swashing about. Yeah, it's a classic classic coincidence there. I mean, the crisis itself uh, with COVID hitting, of course, hits production lines. And uh, when yeah. you can't produce the output, then then bang, uh, you, you, you can then have some uh, you've got supply pressures. Uh, it's costing you more to produce what you are able to produce, and you can get demand pull as well. And people are willing to pay more to reserve something for themselves and going to somewhere else. That happens to a more, much more for commodity, uh, you know, raw materials and, and agricultural output than it does for industrial products, which tend to be a set markup on on their input costs, and they don't change anywhere near as often. But yeah, you're getting inflationary surge coming out of a totally different factor than the money creation. But of course, you just know how this is going to be used by Austrians in particular. Uh, they're going to blame the increase in the price level on uh, on the on the government deficit and not on the supply chain disruptions. But I mean, there is a lot of money there that's going to be around for a long time now. So there's been all these uh, uh, economic impact payments from the uh, the CARES Act. Uh, paid out by the U.S. government, so uh, the, the, which uh, from the IRS, the, which stands for Inland Revenue Service. Actually, it's funny, isn't it? Because they need to change their name now. It should be the Inland Gifting Service because uh, it's uh, you know paying out rather than taking in. Um, but I mean, as we've been saying, that once that's paid to someone, that's going to stay in the in, in the banking system until it's taxed out. So there is going to be a lot more money that's that there's not people uh, indebted back to their bank to pay it back. 
So surely that will create inflation, won't it? If there's if there's more money around, unless we are all being more productive, surely you're going to say, well, okay, things are over time going to be more expensive because the value of the dollar. I, I mean, I, I know you, you've got an answer for this, but if you <laughs> if you're increasing the amount of money in circulation, uh, but you're not increasing productivity, surely the value of the dollar is going to decrease, isn't it? Well, the value that you've like been talking the United States dollar, that's got far more to do with international trade and international forces than it has with yeah. domestic costs. Um, okay, let's isolate it. Let's isolate. Let's imagine the United States is only one country. Then let's look at the international implications of it then. Mm. If it was a country on its own, there was only one currency and it was the US dollar. Mm. There was only one one nation in the world. Let's 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 think like Americans now. Uh, <laughs> that's the, about right. So uh, in in that scenario, you increase the amount of money that's that that, that is available. You're not increasing productivity. Surely the the value of the the dollar is going to decrease, isn't it? Well, even even a monetarist would have to admit one little flaw in that argument. And that's that the the argument that uh, increasing the money supply causes inflation assumes that the level of transactions are independent of what happens with the monetary system and most importantly that the velocity of money doesn't change. Uh, Milton Friedman's uh, spent most of his career trying to empirically prove that and it's empirically nonsense when you take a look at the ratio between the stock of money and the and GDP, GDP you, you, the simplest illustration for example if, if America's GDP was 20 trillion which is pretty close to what it is. And if the money stock was ten trillion, then the money's turning over twice per year. Now, when you take mm. a look, you actually go to have a good look on the Fred database and look for the velocity of money. It's not calculated. It's slowing down. Yeah, yeah, and it has I, been I, slowing I, down. So, yeah. so do, is that what happens then? If you if you've got more money moving around, it just moves slower. For, I'm not quite sure why that would happen, but it seems to be the case. Well, that's, it? I think it's largely because you've got more debt. Again, this is one of these areas where individual reactions have a systemic effect. That isn't what people intend, but it actually ends up making, uh, you know, individuals trying to preserve their own skin makes it worse collectively. So if you have, you know, let's say you take out a mortgage and you've now, and of course your mortgage payments don't turn up in the consumption data, so that sort of implies a, a fall in consumption. Uh, but what you will do to try to pay that mortgage is you cut back on everything. You stop going to restaurants. You, uh, you know, stop paying for the babysitter, blah, blah, blah. You spend less, and therefore the velocity of circulation of the money you have goes down. Now, that means you've got more capacity to repay your debt. But because you're not spending, GDP has gone down as well. And therefore, when you do that calculation, you find a fall in velocity. And I, I, you know, I haven't done the, the theoretical work on it, but this is what I've looked at. The, the, the trend, rising levels of private debt have gone with the falling level of, uh, of turnover of money. And the peak for the velocity of money, when you use the broadest measure of money that used to be developed by the Fed, they used, they used to have this thing called MZM, money of zero maturity, which basically means to them money was anything that you could uh, instantly convert into a, a purchase. If it took you a, a month to sell a bond, then it wasn't money of zero maturity. It takes a, a, a second, then it is money of zero maturity. So that in that calculation, the velocity of money peaked uh, right back in the high inflationary periods of the early early 70s. I think, it, I think you might actually be able to get the data faster than I can there, but money of zero maturity, uh, velocity of that was about two and a half, I think, at the peak. Uh, well, it's now down below one. Or when was yeah. when they last recorded, and I wonder yeah. whether it's got slow because I mean the big hope has been, hasn't it, from from central banks and governments around the world? If hey, you know, people are cashed up, they're going to spend, and that's going to see us recover our way out of this uh, out of out of this situation. 
but it seems like people aren't doing that. They may have more money sitting in their bank accounts, uh, but they are reluctant to spend. So actually, I wonder whether the the value has slowed down. And you know, and you, you, you do, I'm sure everyone who's listening uh, is thinking about their own personal circumstances where you're not buying train tickets, mm. uh, you're not eating out as much. Uh, you are sitting on that money. Yeah, I mean, and just looking at the data now, this is velocity of M- M- MZM from the Fed, and they discontinued it. Uh, very recently, actually, like uh, it, it was last updated in May uh, of, of, of this year. So that's when they decided to discontinue it. And uh, it, if you look from 1960 through to about 1965-70, um, that's when I think you can sort of regard it as unaffected by the level of debt or by the rate of inflation. And then the rate of inflation starts to pick up. Um, mainly, inflation actually starts getting high around the 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 the, uh, the 70s and the first big crisis in 73 but the velocity was 1.8 um, between 1960 and 1965 uh, then it hit uh, two and a half in 1975 and finally three and a half so the ratio of the GDP to the stock of money of zero mat- zero maturity was 3.5 it's been trending down ever since the inflation bogey got beaten which was by Vokler during the Vokler recession but you then also have the rising levels of private debt which which also took off at the same time it's been cyclical but it's it's trended down from 3.5 with the peak here 3.540 so money turning a 3.54 times a year uh, when we hit the beginning of the pandemic it was down to 1.235 and during the pandemic and this is the point we're talking about fundamentally from Q1 of 2020 it was 1.223 and we go to uh, just trying to get my mouse to move smoothly here bloody thing Q2 0.955 so literally wow. in, in one quarter money went from turning over 1.2 times a year to less than once per year so why is that happening then because if it's because of rising debt uh, then uh, even if the money is created by, you know, it's, it's debt that's been created by, by commercial banks, that money is still... So I, I get a, a bank loan from the bank, I buy a house, that that money goes to the uh, property developer, the property developer employs people to build houses, that money goes into their bank accounts, they go and spend and have a nice life. So why would... So, you know, money's still flowing in that situation. Why would it slow down even though... I've become heavily indebted as part of this process. No, because you're trying to pay off your debt. So you spend, you spend, you deliberately spend more slowly. Right. And I think this, this is this is quite a common individual phenomenon. If you if you're massively in debt, then you, your mind is dominated by I've got to pay the debt down. And the way you try to pay the debt down is by saving money. But your saving means to fall in somebody else's consumption. And this is the importance of the argument. But the one thing macroeconomists agree on from different schools of thought is expenditure is identical to income. What you spend is somebody else's income. <clears throat> and so that's, that's, that's an ironclad rule of, of, of macroeconomic analysis. So if you're spending more slowly, other people's income will fall. Right. And but, that's what's going on. Right, but am I necessarily spending more slowly? I'm just trying to pay off my debt faster. I guess if I'm paying off my debt faster, then that's destroying money because I'm paying it back yeah. to the commercial bank that created it. But we're seeing mm. the money, but aggregate level, we're seeing the money supply increase. So there must be other people taking out more loans. And my point was, if you take out a loan 
uh, it's got to be used to pay someone, and that's that that, that and that, that person is probably going to employ people. So that's going to you be know, that, great, that, great. that's that's where that's where demand comes from credit. So aggregate demand is turnover. Then this is the, the thing I worked out ages ago. I finally got the mathematics right after about ten years of fiddling with it. Aggregate demand in a in a capitalist economy is turnover of existing money plus the change in debt. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's turnover of existing money plus credit. Now, when plus credit is positive, and then like this, this, this is what gave us the financial crisis, when plus uh, credit is positive and it f- peaked at 15% of GDP in America in 2007, then that's dramatically increasing the level of t- total aggregate demand. So you've got the turnover of existing money, uh, which might be declining because your velocity of money is falling, Okay, yeah. um, so that could be going down. But if your credit's fifteen percent of GDP, that more than compensates for a, a small fall in the velocity of money. But then, when you have a financial crisis, as we had, and it seems to be almost forgotten these days, but it happened in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. Uh, then the credit goes from plus fifteen percent to minus five. And then in that situation, it also coincides with a fall in the circulation of money. So again, to just to cover, cover the, the recent figures, if you go back to the second quarter of 2006, which is before the financial crisis began, the turnover money was roughly two. So mm. you know, two, money turned over two times per year. So if you had $10 trillion in cash, you had a $20 trillion GDP. Over the financial, that was really the beginning of the financial crisis was right back in 2006. And maybe the slowdown had something to do with it as well. It went from one point, as I said, from two in the second quarter of 2006 to one and a half in the second quarter of 2009. Now, that's, that's a huge fall in demand from the existing stock of money. And on, you add on top of it, that also coincide with credit going from plus 15% to minus 5%. So it's a huge hit. And and what it does, what tends to happen, this this is a this amplifies the original downturn because you've already got a downturn because credit is is declining, and then because credit's declining, you've you know, you're losing your job or you're seeing friends losing their jobs. You spend less, which slows down and causes more people to lose their jobs. Mm. Yeah, and that's what's slowing the recovery right now, isn't it? Because people may have the cash because the government has spent more, but they're uh, but they're fearful of spending it because they because uh, they want to have that buffer. Uh, in case we get another strain of the of the virus, plus the and face, then, actually, and they, they also quite, can't go quite out and shop. Yeah, actually, yeah. say they actually can't yeah. spend it anyway, even if they wanted yeah. to. So, if 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 the if we did something to try and constrain house prices, and therefore, you know, which is many governments have tried unsuccessfully to do, uh, you know, they're, they're they're getting concerned about it in um, uh, in Australia as well right now. That you know, they're finally starting to admit that actually this might be a problem, and there is is a risk that people start defaulting on their uh, rising debt level. So if, if if governments were successful in that and we constrained the, the growth in, in house prices, that would mean that there would be less loans being given out by commercial banks. That means we would see uh, the amount of money in circulation uh, decline, or at least the growth in the amount of money in circulation decline. Uh, well, in, in fact, it, presumably it would decline eventually because people would eventually start paying, you know, finish paying off their loans and the new loans wouldn't be quite so great. So we could actually see the, the, the size of the money in circulation actually start to fall a little bit, couldn't we? So do you think in that situation we would see the speed of circulation increase to try and compensate for that? Um, well, not when people are doing it because they're you know, in a financial crisis and they're afraid of going bankrupt. If you look, you look what happened from, again, from America, from the financial crisis um, to the, when the recovery sort of started, household debt peaked at 100% of GDP and fell to 80%. 
Um, so that implies a similar fall in the money supply because people are either paying their debt off or the mm. debt's being written off because they uh, they can't pay their debt back and therefore the bank has to take a hit on its equity, uh, which if it hits its short-term equity, that also reduces the amount of money in circulation. So that happens and that will also be coincide with people deciding to spend as little as possible because they don't want to, you know, fall, find, them, find themselves falling into bankruptcy although they've gone bankrupt and they can't spend. So I think those tend to be, they amplify each other during a downturn. I think right. the only way, the only well, this is one reason I, I, for wanting a modern debt jubilee and, and for also expecting it to be something which would stimulate the, the economy uh, is that if you reduce the level of private debt, you will reduce people's personal tendency to not spend because they're worried about the level of private debt. And you will get a boost in turnover of the existing stock of money and a boost in income coming out of that as well. But if it, was, if it wasn't a crisis situation, it was just we had good government policy. I know I'm living in a dream world now. Good government good gov- policy. Good policy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, imagine yeah. that. Uh, and I have some of what you're having? I, I haven't had anything <laughs> good for all. Right. We are recording this very early in the morning. I'm not quite awake yet, so I haven't got all my, okay, uh, okay, all my okay. faculties with me. Still in the dream time. Okay. Exactly. This isn't real as far as I'm concerned. It'll be a surprise when this, when this podcast actually goes up. I'll think, oh, did that actually happen? Uh, but look, <laughs> if, you, if we went through 10 years of good government policy and, and we actually did manage to constrain the price of houses uh, then that would mean that the amount of money being loaned out by banks over that 10 years would gradually decline as the very expensive loans were paid off and the new loans weren't quite so big so we'd have less money in circulation so there wouldn't be a crisis as such Um, you know people would have more money available to spend on other stuff Presumably, that means the speed of money, the velocity of money, would increase, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that's and that's exactly what. I mean, like I've modelled this in my Minsky software, trying to model what actually would happen with a modern debt jubilee, and I set it up in such a way that I, I could model it so there was no money creation. So what you had was effectively the, the modern debt jubilee replaced credit-based money. So you had a no change in the total stock of money, but a, a change in rather than being based on on debt, it was based on fiat. And to my surprise, when I first ran it, I got a dramatic increase in GDP. Now, the reason for it, I had no behavioral changes at all, so not even the stuff we're talking about. What actually happened was because the Jubilee gave the same amount of money to everybody, then it had more impact upon the poor than it had upon the rich, and the poor spend more rapidly. So even though there's no change in the overall amount of money, it's a change in the distribution of money and then distribution of debt, and what you got was a dramatic boost in spending because more of, more, more of the money was turning up in the hands of the poor who would spend more quickly. Yeah. The irony is, isn't it, uh, which is great, but the irony is when you get a situation where there's a downturn, people, the first thing people want to do is, is to deleverage. So if we look in the UK, for example, uh, the overdraft balances outstanding has fallen from Eight billion uh, at the start of the pandemic to below six billion, so two billion in in uh, in overdrafts debts. You know, which is destroying money, isn't it? That's the people don't want that debt hanging over them. So that money has been destroyed because it's uh, it's money that's been created by the banks that's now been pulled out of the the economy. So that's another two billion pounds, which is money that's not being spent. Yeah, and and and, and what we're seeing instead at the moment is the opposite, where the government's doing the spending. And uh, we've, we've still yet to see the overall impact of this, but this has effectively reduced people's 
monetary debt levels. I mean, the debt to GDP ratio is probably going to remain much the same. But with people having more cash in their bank accounts, courtesy of the deficit, they actually do have more capacity to spend and they can, in fact, pay down their debts to some extent with the money created by the well, that's the first thing that happens, isn't it? So we saw that, uh, you know, with Kevin 07, when Kevin Rudd started putting money during the financial crisis into people's bank accounts in, mm. in Australia. A lot of people use that money to just pay off their mortgage a bit more. Uh, I mean, there was some spending buying flat screen TVs because they were new and trendy back then. Uh, mm. But uh, but a lot of it was uh, being spent to pay off debt, which is a bit sad in a way, isn't it? Because the government's there to try and pump the money into the economy. So there's more money swishing around. And then people are saying, well, OK, now we're going to pay off our debt. So they're destroying a chunk of that money that the government's created. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that you, you, you know, you, you've got to have controls over what the private banking sector does because um, what they do can counteract uh, government policy. Now, that's people are going to be, I, I know Austrians might scoff at that, you know, that's they, they reckon government policy should be counteracted. But what it means is that because the government, because the private banks can create money by debt in the same way the government creates money by fiat, uh, and, the, and the private banks can actually sell government bonds to the private sector, which also re, uh, re, it, it reduces the money supply, uh, what the government thinks it's controlling, it isn't really controlling. Mm. And on, only if it actually said, well, the right to create money is a privilege and it comes with these conditions, and these conditions include us controlling whether you can sell to the public or not, et cetera, et cetera, sell bonds, uh, then you might have more of that effective control. But otherwise, you know, it's, you've got a system with two steering wheels. So the actual, actually the way that the government would – a better way if the government really wanted to ensure that they were paying money in – uh, to people's bank accounts, and, and it wasn't then being used to pay down debt. Although governments, of course, would say that's great, isn't it? People are, are, are less indebted without necessarily thinking that it's pulling, uh, it's destroying money. But if they realise that, then we've talked about this in the past. There's got to be ways that you can provide assistance, like for example, saying, "Well, okay, we're going to give you a a, a a debit card that's stacked high on money, and just spend that because you can't spend that to pay off your loan, uh, but you can use it to buy goods in shops. So that's going to help the economy." That sort of thing. I mean, this is one reason why the central banks have been trying to abolish cash and bring in negative mm. uh, rates on deposit accounts because they're trying to manipulate how much people spend. I'm no great fan of that. Um, but you know, what I what I think we have to try to try to remember, though, you just know how much the mainstream will make us try to forget it. The, the increase in savings we've seen this time has been caused by the government deficit. And that's you know, mm. a strong confirmation of what the government's capable of doing. And we've, at the same time, we've got this discussion over the, the trillion-dollar coin, pardon me, as a way to back what the government does rather than selling bonds. It looks like that particular argument's been resolved, that the politically are going to finally yet again increase the debt ceiling in the states. Uh, but the government well, they've, pushed it, they've pushed it back. They've just said we're going to push it back to December. I mean, they, they haven't solved the problem. But that's an interesting one, the idea, well, let's just create a coin. Yeah, well, I mean, and I've actually, you would be amazed to know that I've done a Minsky model of the process. And um, it, it's, it's basically the people who are going to complain about this when it's done are going to be the banks because they don't get any bonds out of it and they don't get the capacity to speculate on buying and selling the bonds, which is a huge part of the activity of the shadow banking system. And they don't get any interest on the bonds because it'll be a coin. There'll be no interest. So the main, the main people who are going to suffer out of the coin are going to be the banks. And uh, they're going to go from people, you know, being opposed to government deficits in the usual ideological reasons that uh, conservative uh, economists are to wanting it because they're seeing their a, a major income source for the private banking sector disappearing. So is this? I mean, that is pure modern monetary theory, isn't it? You know, it you is, create- yeah, and 
Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not involved in the banking sector. You are just creating something. You're just creating a trillion dollars because you can. Yeah. And, and like with the way that it works is the, the, the government, the treasury owns the mint. Uh, the mint mm. makes a coin. The mint is an asset of the coin and, and, a, li- and a liability of treasury. But the, tre- mint, the mint, because it's owned by the treasury, has to hand the, hands the coin over to the treasury. Here's a piece of platinum worth a trillion dollars. Uh, and then the... The Treasury takes that and deposits it to the uh, central bank. And the central bank, okay, we now have the coin and you have a trillion dollar entry in your deposit account, the Treasury, at the, uh, at the uh, central bank. And you can use that to spend. And therefore, that, that coin could finance a trillion dollars worth of government deficit. Now, no one has argued against the logic of that. What they have said, and I think this is uh, from both sides of politics in the United States, is that the concern would be that it would uh, make people lose confidence in the value of the US dollar if they were to do that. Yeah. If they were to show, well, we can we can just create this money. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, all the arguments about how people's behavior and expectation are going to be changed that neoclassicals throw out, uh, it deserves to be thrown out. I mean, you might remember back, back during the Australian stimulus, the argument was, oh, people will uh, not spend this at all. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll regard it as a one-off. Uh, which is not part of your permanent income. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've forgotten, you know, it gets to lock in all the neoclassical jargon occasionally. But their argument was that something, it's called the permanent income hypothesis. And, and if they see it as a transient thing, they'll, they'll spend it. But if they see it affecting their long-term income, they won't spend it. Some crazy argument like that. Mm. Of course, it just, you give people money, they spend it. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Uh, and, Unless yeah. they were, unless you know, times like now when they're worried and they and they they want to uh, hoard it, and there's definitely a bit of that going on because people are worried about the future. But look, the other thing you can do if if you're a government, if the if the UK lowered VAT because it because you know you're paying you're paying stimulus checks to people, that's got exactly the same impact as reducing tax, hasn't it? Except if you reduce tax, you can actually target the impact on on who benefits so you can for example say well lower taxes for for poorer people for example but the net effect is the same whether you you pay out checks or whether you reduce tax that is money coming out from the government that's finding itself in the private sector either way yeah the, 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 the real thing about the tax and this is something we haven't discussed actually in this conversation is who you take them whose money whose bank accounts you take the money out of uh because if you, if you look at what's happening with the the deficit spending this time around, it's pretty much gone you know, very broadly to people's um, uh, bank accounts, almost regardless of social class, uh, and maybe even more to the poor than the rich initially. But then the poor have to spend that. You know, even if you're a renter, you've got to spend that on uh, paying the landlord, and the landlord has to pay the bank and the mortgage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the, the the money ends up going into um, the accounts of the uh, middle class and poor. Um, but being paid to the rich. And then if the taxes, as we're seeing in the UK right now, get imposed on the poor, well, the, the money creation is entirely benefiting the wealthy, not the poor. Yeah. And that seems to be the outcome, particularly in the UK. So, But if, if they'd said instead, well, I tell you what, let's not pay any, any checks out to people. Let's just, well, we could do a bit of both, but let's just lower VAT, which actually they did in certain sectors. So they reduced the value-added tax. Uh, so the tax on purchases for, for those people who don't know what VAT is, which is 20, mm. 20%. It's a chunk of money. Everything you buy mm. in the UK, you've got to pay, add 20% on because that's what VAT is. They did reduce mm. it for certain sectors like uh, catering and accommodation to try and help those sectors. They pushed it back up again, of course. But if they if they mm. just dropped VAT across the board, uh, not only would it administratively make people's lives uh, simple, 
but less VAT is gathered, so less money is going back to the government. So that would, in effect, be expanding the, the private sector money supply, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Which would be a, perhaps a more sensible way of doing it, because the people who would benefit would be the uh, the people whose consumption as a you know ratio of their income is higher. They you know to the well, poor- when when you have a when you have a regressive tax like a VAT, yeah, um, but it's you know you pay it regardless of your income level, and uh, if you're poor, you spend far more money on 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 food and necessities uh, than you do on. You know, the, the rich use their money for speculation and moving it offshore. They're not spending anywhere near as much as their money and they spend more slowly. So mm. a VAT will hit those who spend uh, most of their money and spend it rapidly. Yeah, and, and, and would encourage them to spend as well because if you were told, uh, look, we're going to drop VAT uh, during this period of recovery, but it's only a temporary move, uh, then, you know, th- that would be a good policy to get people spending to help the, the recovery. Uh, you know, VAT is going. It's going through 2021 and uh, it's back in 2022. Everyone who's sitting on the money going, oh, I'm just going to save it for a rainy day might go, well, no, I'm going to you know everything's 20% off right now. Uh, and it's creating government money in the in part of the process as well. That seems like a big win, doesn't it? And yet we're pushing VAT back up in, in the UK and we are adding an extra one, one point, one and a quarter percent tax on, uh, on, on people as well, right across the board. So we're going the and opposite is- way. Yeah, opposite way, and this is the whole idea you've got to repair the balance sheets of the government. Well, you do it by, when you repair the government's balance sheet, you destroy the balance sheet of the private sector. And, uh, you know, again, it looks like the UK is going to get the wooden spoon to two crises running, one for getting austerity after the 2007 crisis, which meant the UK had the slowest recovery it's ever had from a downturn. And if it does again against COVID, you know, after all the pain and agony of COVID, um, to then find you're actually causing people to be able to spend less. You're going to cause a recession after COVID, having prevented one during it. And the reason they want to do that is because they're worried that if you have too much money, uh, too much overspending, then you are going to uh, you're going to create inflation. And just going back to those figures I gave at the beginning, in 1973, mm. the amount of money that was sitting in people's bank accounts was 600 million. Uh, now it's 17 and a half trillion. This is in the United States. If you took that mm. 600 million and allowed for inflation, it would just be 3.7 trillion. But it's 17.5 trillion so that's how much money has been created on top i know you're saying a lot of it's debt but it's going to be Hmm. an interesting experience isn't it over the next uh, year or so to see how this government spending what the impact has really been because we've never had this experiment before it's going to be interesting to see Mm -hmm. we'll watch with interest okay we'll leave it there for now what a pun okay (laughs) (laughs) catch you next time steve okay mate bye and uh, next time, the energy crisis that we've been seeing in the UK and Europe, could it have been avoided with better government policy? Well, obviously, the answer to that is yes, it would help. But do you also need to nationalise power? Has the lack of planning been the result of private companies looking at short-term fixes rather than a long-term solution? And can we really transform to a greener economy with such a disparate mix of energy providers? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen and me, Phil Dobby, of course. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.